I'm Nidhi Tiwari. And I'm Billy Samoa. And this is Relearned. Billy, as we're talking about this concept of emotional intelligence, it feels kind of nebulous. Like, I think we throw out this word, but we don't necessarily know what it actually means. Well, what the research shows is that there is actually four different levels of emotional intelligence. And these include your ability to reason using emotions, the ability to manage and regulate your own emotions, how you understand your emotions, and your perception of emotions. When you know your own emotions and you also can understand other people's emotions, it's easy for us to say to manage your emotions and to understand other people's emotions. It's a whole other thing to practice it because it is an art. It is something that you do practice over time and you get better at it, which is why it is a skill. It is something that the more you do it and the more in tune you are, with others and with yourself, the more likely you're going to have high EQ. I think it's important to check in with ourselves as regularly as possible, but also do the calibration on how well we're understanding other people. We could look at our boss who's angry or appears angry, and we could make the assumption that he's mad at us. But in reality, he might have had a fight with his wife that morning. He might have had an argument with one of his kids or just had a bad night's sleep. We take it out of the context that we're within, which is we're at work and he's been rude or she's been rude and therefore they are mad at me. And this is why I always subscribe to the belief that we should assume positive intent because I think fundamentally what that allows us to do is it allows us to temper our own emotions and regulate ourselves so that we're not too convinced that the other person is doing whatever they're doing because of us. It may be entirely because of them. So this is such a fascinating subject to explore. Let's dive a bit deeper. Well, really early on, I was kind of like the go-to person for people to talk to, which ironically, and maybe not so ironically, I became a therapist because that became a really strong skill set of mine. So my earliest memories in connecting with people were them coming to me for advice or a listening ear. And I always felt like I was really good at pulling out what people are saying, understanding the underlying emotion, and then being able to support them in a way that is going to be helpful and meaningful to them. But I noticed really early on in my journey too, I encountered lots of people that had really low EQ. And this happened throughout my life up until this point where I find that some people are really great at this. Like they're super in tune and they know how to anticipate what people need. But other people are a little bit clueless. And I've had leaders that have uh, not quite understood how to be empathetic and how to be able to relate and connect to people. And it's been to the detriment of, uh, I think, the well-being of the organization and the success ultimately. So those are some of my earliest memories. And I just think it's been a theme throughout my life. So I look back at my career and I recognize that one of the things that helped me grow and develop was this emotional intelligence part of who I am and being able to read people, being able to understand people. And when we look at like the work of a guy like Daniel Goleman, who wrote and talked about the five pillars of emotional intelligence, it helps to make us better understand why and how EQ or emotional intelligence can help us in the workplace. 
if we're looking at skills that you can develop, you know, I always think of confidence being a super important thing because everybody trusts and respects somebody who's confident. But if you look at confidence, where does confidence come from? Confidence comes from being able to set up a, a way in which you can be present in a way where you command some kind of authority or presence that makes people feel comfortable. And so when you make people feel comfortable around you, and it could be your staff that report to you, or it could be people who you report to, and it goes both ways. And, and also it could be your peers, the, your colleagues, your coworkers. Giving people comfort is really at its core what I think allows people to thrive. And, and comfort comes from making people feel at ease and that you understand them. And so when we think about this idea of EQ, I think probably the core pillar that I draw from and think about is empathy. And when you have empathy for other people, you understand them. Also, you can put yourself in their shoes, at least to some degree, which they feel. And I know that when you look at EQ and you think about people who don't have high EQ, there's certain signs that you should be on the lookout for. And you and I were talking about this. Can you share what some of those signs are? Well, I think that it's often tied back to a lack of self-awareness because when you're not aware of how you come across and when you are unaware of how people perceive you, I feel like that's a big indicator that hmm, that you should maybe check in. And some people that I find have low EQ, they have opinions that are infallible and they're not willing to really look at other perspectives. So if we see a lot of like the most divisive topics that come up in our society, they're really highly opinionated people that are unwilling to budge and unwilling to see other perspectives. And sometimes that can be a signal of lower EQ because you want to be able to express your emotions, to be able to empathize with the other person's perspective. And you want to keep an open enough mind to where people feel safe to express a different thought process with you. This is where I see a lot of leaders struggle because they say that they want people to dissent and they say that they want people to have different types of feedback and opinions. But then when people share their opinions with leadership, all of a sudden now they're getting defensive or they hold it against that person. And it's because they thought they were ready to hear something that was perhaps counter to what their opinion was. But in reality, they weren't necessarily in that space to hear that. And so I think that's one of the biggest hallmarks is that lack of self-awareness. When you see people be insensitive or blame other people, this is like one of my biggest pet peeves. I don't know about you, but when people have a hard time taking accountability it's really like red flag, red flag, low EQ, because we all make mistakes. And if we're not able to acknowledge that and to say, hey, I messed up, my bad, I didn't mean to do that. Here's how I'm going to do it differently in the future. And be willing to go through the, the trust rebuilding process that takes some time. I find that that's where relationships end and where we tend to have a lot of conflict and discord is People aren't willing to say, hey, I made a mistake. And so I think a lot of times people view that as a weakness, but 
one of the most effective strategies that we can do to build and maintain trust is to take responsibility and make an acknowledgement of our missteps along the way. Is that one of your big pet peeves too? Because I know I just, I like roll my eyes every time somebody's trying to blame somebody else. Think back to when I was a server in a restaurant and both as a, a customer sitting in a seat, being served at a restaurant and also me being the server. One of my pet peeves is when somebody blames somebody else. And for example, oh, the kitchen messed up. Okay, maybe the kitchen did mess up, but really, do you want to place blame on them? And then in a lot of cases, you forgot to put the order in or you made the mistake. And I respect someone so much more when they say they messed up, when they say that they made a mistake because we all make mistakes. It actually makes us human. It makes us more relatable. And to your point, it builds trust, which fundamentally is so crucial for any interpersonal relationship that we have, it's built on trust. It's built on our ability to believe the other person has our best interest at heart, is on our side, is not out to get us, is not deflecting or projecting or any of the other things that we may feel like we should do to save face or to somehow make ourselves look better. It makes us look worse. So, as I looked into this and, and studied a bit deeper, one of the things I really wanted to get clear on is what affects a person's low EQ. The first thing and, and probably the most obvious thing is when mental health issues are present. And this is when people have difficulty really regulating their emotion. And that can be a primary symptom of mental health being a factor. So if you're experiencing anxiety or depression and even things as serious as, as having a personality disorder, what can happen is you start to develop this social anxiety because of your low EQ. And that can be stressful. That could strain on the relationships that you have and the interactions that you have could be adversely affected. So what are your thoughts on the mental health front and the influence that has? I've definitely worked a ton with people that have social anxiety and people that are neurodivergent that may be even on the autism spectrum. And so early in my career, I used to do social skills training, which drives home the point that these are skills that can be learned and then utilized. Yeah. So EQ is a skill that can be learned. And one of the easiest ways, if you're thinking to yourself, oh no, like what if I have low EQ? Like some of these signs and symptoms that Billy and Nidhi are talking about they resonate with me. Well, the good news is that you can start to pay attention to people's demeanor. Nonverbal cues really let you in on what somebody is saying without actually saying it. When you start to notice people's facial expressions shift, you start to notice that their body language gets closed off, whether they're leaning back versus leaning forward. I help a lot of my clients as a therapist to be able to navigate this. And honestly, part of what I would do in terms of my work with leaders too is developing their emotional intelligence so that way they can connect and, and hold space better for their teams. And I teach them these skills too because it doesn't necessarily come naturally to a lot of people. So if you're really paying close attention and listening between the lines to what somebody is saying, you're going to come away with so much more information. But yeah, I do think that anxiety absolutely plays a role. And you had touched on earlier, like the difficulties with emotion regulation, that can affect your EQ as well. Because if you become flooded with emotion or overwhelmed or easily angered, it's difficult to manage your response in that moment. 
So you may accidentally come across as aggressive or passive aggressive or too forward or brutal (laughs) towards somebody by accident. And so if just being able to pay attention to how do people respond to me when I give feedback in this way, is there a way for me to present it differently so that way they don't feel as though I'm attacking them or whatever the case may be. These are all just different techniques that you can utilize and learn if you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I do have a mental health diagnosis and I do kind of struggle from a relationship standpoint, this is something I want to be working on. So I'm curious about alexithemia and I make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I understand it to be a condition where people have difficulty distinguishing emotional cues and really they're unable to name their emotions and they also may suffer from a lack of emotions and from what I know about it, it can often be caused by things that happened in our childhood, like trauma, or maybe it can happen from a brain injury or even stroke. What is your understanding of this and how does this play into our conversation about emotional intelligence? Typically when people experience trauma, especially in their early childhood with their parents, often what I see is that they were in an environment where emotions weren't safe to feel and express. So you learn to just dissociate and disconnect from your feelings as a way to manage and cope, and it becomes a survival mechanism. And so when I work with clients that have complex trauma, especially early childhood trauma, and they can't name emotions, I'm thinking, okay, well, what were the messages that you received about emotions and being able to express them and identify them early on? And how can we start to develop that skill set too? Something that can be really helpful is using what's called an emotions wheel, where there's probably like 75 different emotions on there, but they're little sub facets of, for example, excitement versus enthusiastic versus nervous versus fearful versus disgusted, right? All of these different emotions and that we may experience, but may not necessarily think of beyond just scared. So I feel like a lot of times when you're coming out of either a physical trauma or an emotional trauma, you have to kind of relearn how to be able to touch into what you're experiencing internally. And that is another skill that you can develop along the way. In a minute, we're going to get into the tips, which is probably the most exciting part of our conversation, which is, hey, how do we actually improve our emotional intelligence? Before we do, I want to circle back to what you said, which was actually the final point I have on one of the causes and effects of a person's low EQ and what what really is the reason behind it, which you touched on, which is parenting. And as a parent myself, I have a 10-year-old. I recognize that every interaction I have, I'm either modeling the behavior or frankly, I'm doing the opposite. And so understanding how to regulate your emotions is a learned behavior that happens by looking at other people around us. And of course, the central figures that are most important to us is our parents. And so children really should be encouraged to name their emotions and share their emotions and express what emotions they're feeling. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, especially with parents who they themselves have low EQ, they struggle to raise children with high EQ. Clearly, we are so influenced by the role that a parent plays in our lives. And we as parents are so influential in how we provide a pathway to have more emotional intelligence. And so I think the key point here is that we are so important to the well-being of our children 
in so many ways, in the way in which they learn, in the way in which they interact. And yes, emotional intelligence plays a huge role in their success later on in life. And we've seen in history, especially in some families, they push emotions down. They sweep them under the rug. They say that you should not cry or you should not feel this way. And it saddens me to think that so many children around the world don't have an honest conversation about their emotions and the long-term effects are profound. So curious what your thoughts are on that. And then I'd love to jump in on the topic of what we can do to develop our own emotional intelligence. Well, what you said really resonates with me. And I would love to kind of hear your background on this because I know that we grew up in two very different families with your mom being a therapist, my dad being an engineer, right? So very different type of EQ coming through. (laughs) And so what I would encourage people to really think about, and I've had to do this work myself, is exploring the messages that I received, that you received in childhood about emotions. What was okay to feel? So many times anger is an acceptable emotion, but sadness is not an acceptable emotion. Sadness is somehow weak. Anger is somehow considered strong, right? For some people, they learn that all emotions aside from things are just great are not okay to express because at some point in your life, I would bet somebody invalidated your feelings or told you if you were crying, I'll give you something to cry about. I mean, how many of us have heard that, right? Sure. So we invalidate our own feelings potentially based on the early messaging that we received. And I know that for me, it's been an uphill journey, even as a therapist who does emotional work day in and day out and somebody who speaks and does storytelling about my own life from an emotional place, becoming vulnerable has been hard because of feeling like there's something wrong with things not being perfect, just fine. Okay. I know that that's my background, but Billy, you grew up in a different environment. What were some of those messages that you received? So my dad got a PhD in educational psychology and my stepmom, as you mentioned, was the therapist and my biological mother as well has been very much an emotional person in my life and, and helping with emotion and allowing me to let the emotion out. And I think at its core, that's what it's about. So for me, I feel very lucky to be honest, that I have that. And I realize that not everyone does. And so you do take it for granted, right? Because this is what I knew. This is what I grew up with. But you do look, as you've highlighted, even some cultures or some families specifically, it's not something that's talked about. In fact, I was reading about Dr. John Gottman, who observed how parents respond to their children's emotion. And the whole purpose of this was to better understand how emotional intelligence develops. If it's so important, right? If we know it's important later in life, let's study this. Let's understand it. And he broke it down into four big buckets. The first one is dismissing parents. And these are parents who see the emotions as maybe unimportant and even attempt to eliminate them. This is the whole sweeping under the rug thing. They often use distraction or try to bring up different subjects. They do whatever they can to pretend it doesn't exist. The second big bucket is disapproving parents. And these are parents who see the negative emotions as something that should be completely diminished. And often through punishment or through really negative methods. And I think this is obviously something very concerning. And the fourth one is parents who are more what we'll call laissez-faire. Parents who maybe accept the emotions from the child, but fail to help 
the child to solve the problem or to really understand or name the emotions. It just means that they kind of just let it happen. And then finally, there's parents who do some emotional coaching. These are parents who value negative emotions. They're not impatient with the child's expression of them. And they also use their own emotional experience as an opportunity to help bond and to offer guidance and help to label the emotions and even do the problem solving to allow the emotions to not only be heard and understood, but to be felt. Because guess what? Emotions are to be felt. I think all too often we go through life where we make the assumption, maybe because we were raised a certain way, that we shouldn't feel emotions or we're made to feel bad about our emotions or we don't acknowledge our emotions. As that happens, what we end up feeling is this idea of feeling stuck and this idea of feeling almost pain. It can lead to depression and other things in our life because we're not allowing the emotions to run through us. Instead, we're bottling them up. And so his research shows that children of parents who emotionally coach are healthier. They actually do better in school. They end up getting along with friends and have better relationships. And at its core, his message is that you don't need to feel guilty for having emotions. So tell me, how does that land for you? And what are some of the other tips that you could think of to help? Because ultimately, we know that coaching helps. What are some of the other things we could be doing proactively to start to harness this skill and to refine it and develop it? Because like anything, you can improve it. It's like going to the gym, right? You work out the muscles that you want to work out and you get stronger. So how do we get stronger with emotional intelligence? Well, the first thing is getting comfortable with discomfort, right? My God, like I can't tell you how many times people are just like so quick to try to move past something. Or if you're experiencing something that's an uncomfortable emotion, like you're feeling upset or frustrated, they have the hardest time being able to just sit with that. And instead, they just jump into fix-it mode. Oh, have you tried this? Oh, why don't you think about it from this perspective? Oh, maybe this is really what's happening. It's like, nobody asked you for your feedback. Like it's coming from a place of discomfort. So skill number one, from my perspective, is we've got to get comfortable being able to just let people experience things and to not feel compelled to make it stop, to try to make it better, to try to push it away or sweep it under the rug. And I love what you said about doing this from a parenting standpoint. I also am a firm believer that we can reparent ourselves and that part of our own journey, right? Like if you're hearing this and you're like, oh my gosh, I had dismissive parents or I had parents that were laissez-faire, but they didn't really help me to navigate feelings. So now when feelings come up, I just like feel overwhelmed by them. It's all good, right? Like part of the beauty of being a human is that we have neuroplasticity where we have the capability to learn and grow. And so start to reparent yourself. In those moments where you feel overwhelmed, like I've had to learn how to be able to calm myself down, to breathe through it, to ground myself, to talk it out, to name it and tame it, right? As Dr. Dan Siegel would say, like these are all really important skills that you're never too old or you're never too far along in your lifespan to start to learn. And I think so often we get so caught up on what we didn't receive in our childhood, which is important to explore. It's a valid reasoning for why we function the way we do in the present. And we can make different choices now and learn different skills now. 
So that's my initial thought, Billy, is like, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like we are terrible at being able to sit with discomfort. Couldn't agree more. And as we round things out, I think the thing to think about, and I'll give you the final thought here, it's a journey. And don't get down on yourself if you feel like you're behind. If you feel like you're in a position where the cards you were dealt left you in a position to have lower emotional intelligence. That's okay. It is what it is, but doesn't mean it is what it will be. And there's so much literature, there's so much happening in this world as we study more and more. So go look for talks out there. There's tons of TED Talks. There's Daniel Goleman who helped to introduce emotional intelligence. We're going to put a whole bunch of links into the show notes so that you could find all of the materials that we've read, as well as some others that can help you on your own journey. Don't allow yourself to be in a position where you feel you're stagnant or stuck because you're not. The fact that you're listening to this right now should show you that you care enough to take action. Again, figure out perhaps where you can start to start to flex that muscle, to start to work on it, and take baby steps. It doesn't mean you need to take one giant step. Take little incremental steps towards a healthier, more robust version of you with higher emotional intelligence. So with that, I'll give it over to you for the final word. (laughs) Thanks, Billy. Yeah, I think that in this episode, we relearned a lot. We were able to relook at how we even define emotional intelligence, how our childhood affects the way that we show up and connect with people in the present day and ways that we can pay it forward, change some of these intergenerational patterns. And I think that the thing that I'm coming away with the most is that you know, we're all works in progress. Our past becomes present, but it doesn't have to become your future. So continue this journey. Use this as motivation, as inspiration for you to be able to just dive a little bit deeper and just recognize that no matter how much EQ you have, really, really high EQ people understand and have the self-awareness that that journey is never over. So really enjoyed this conversation and hope to see you all next week for Relearn. If you enjoyed the insights and perspectives you've gained from Relearned, please consider following the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're grateful for your support, and we look forward to being a part of your transformational journey. 